Let's continue worship with a reading from Luke 10. And behold, a lawyer stood up to put him to the test, saying, Teacher, what shall I do to inherit eternal life? He said to him, What is written in the law? How do you read it? And he answered, You shall love the Lord your God with all of your heart, with all of your soul, and with all of your strength, and with all of your mind, and your neighbor as yourself. And he said to him, You have answered correctly. Do this, and you will live. But he, desiring to justify himself, said to Jesus, And who is my neighbor? Jesus replied, A man was going down from Jerusalem to Jericho, and he fell among robbers who stripped him and beat him and departed, leaving him half dead. Now by chance a priest was going down that road, and when he saw him, he passed by on the other side. So likewise a Levite, when he came to the place and saw him, passed by on the other side. But a Samaritan, as he journeyed, came to where he was, and when he saw him, he had compassion. And he went to him and bound up his wounds, pouring on oil and wine. Then he set him on his own animal and brought him to an inn and took care of him. And the next day he took out two denarii and gave them to the innkeeper, saying, Take care of him, and whatever more you spend, I will repay you when I come back. Which of these three do you think proved to be a neighbor to the man who fell among the robbers? He said, The one who showed him mercy. And Jesus said to him, You go and do likewise. This is the word of the Lord. Good morning. Welcome to church. Uh, Please say hello to someone as you have a seat in middle schoolers. You can go to your class. Good morning. morning. How's everyone doing? Glad you came to church today. Good job, Mike. Thanks. Um, I'm Chris. I'm the lead teaching pastor here at Riverstone. I'm glad you're here. If you're a guest, welcome. Um, Real quick, uh, we have a course going on throughout the summer called Alpha. Some like a whale is singing in the background, maybe? Okay. Um, it, it, that course has been going on through the summer, and it's been amazing. Uh, it ends on August 12th, Saturday, August 12th, and we'd like to love on those people um, who are coming to Alpha. Alpha is this course for people exploring Christianity. Did I say that? And we want to love on these people um, by cooking them a home-cooked lunch on August 12th, Saturday. And so um, we figured Italian is a pretty easy thing to cook for large groups. So if you want to practically love on some people who are exploring Christianity, don't consider themselves Christians, but are coming to this church every Wednesday night, it's remarkable, um, to talk about God and Christianity. If you want to love on them in a practical way, would you consider signing up to bring them lunch on August Saturday, August 12th? Um, there's a cook, there's a sign-up sheet out there, and you can sign up for salads or lasagna or whatever that special recipe you have. Um, so thank you for considering that, and thank you for maybe doing that, because I think we could really love on these folks by cooking for them a good meal. So, okay, here we go. Today is our final conversation. Um, in a series we've just called Formed, Formed, like the graphic says. Um, one of the underlying assumptions of this series um, is that, uh, which you may or may not agree with, okay? Um, one of the underlying assumptions is that you, as an individual, are being formed. You're being formed. Um, every day, every thoughts, every uh, habit, every action, everything you give your attention to is forming you. It's making you into a kind of person. (laughs) The things you do, the things you give your attention to, all of these things are forming you into a kind of person. Lewis says it this way. C.S. Lewis says this. You ready? Ready. All right. Buckle up. Taking your whole life as one whole with all of your innumerable choices, all of your life, you are slowly turning either into a heavenly creature or into a hellish creature either into a creature that is in harmony with God and with other creatures and with itself, or one that is in a state of war 
with God and itself and its fellow creatures. To be the one kind is, is heaven. That is joy, peace, knowledge, power. To be the other means madness, horror, idiocy, rage, impotence, and eternal loneliness. Each of us at each moment is progressing towards one state or the other. That explains what always used to puzzle me about Christian writers, still quoting. They seem to be so very strict at one moment and so very free and easy at another. They talk about mere sins of thought as if it were immensely important. And then they talk about the most frightful murders and treacheries as if all you have to do is repent and all would be well. And I've come to see their rights. What they're always thinking of is the mark the action leaves on that tiny central self, which no one sees in this life, but which each of us will have to endure or enjoy forever. So you're being formed. You're turning into a kind of creature, Lewis says, either a creature at harmony with the world and at harmony with God and at harmony with yourself or at war with all those things. And last week we said, we live our lives amidst um, a storm of competing narratives. What do we mean by that? Well, we get to choose which narrative we build our lives on. There's, there's one narrative of the culture, there's your personal narrative, and then there's the biblical narrative. That's what we talked about last week. Our personal narrative is like your family of origin, your personality, your successes, your failures, your strengths, your weaknesses. The cultural narrative is gonna try to dictate how you interpret that personal narrative. And then there's the biblical narrative, right? Which claims to answer questions like, why are we here? And how do you be happy? And what do you need to be happy, right? But the point is, what we made last week is that all of us live amongst the brackish waters of competing narratives. And you get to choose which narrative you swim towards. I get 30 minutes up here, 45 maybe, to convince you, to convince you that there is a beautiful, majestic, liberating narrative of the Bible. And I get to try to plead with you from my whole heart that this narrative will set you free. It'll give you the kind of life you could never dream of. And you're going to leave here and you're going to go back to 24-7, other narrative. 24-7, they beat upon you other world narratives in which they always try to convince you this is what you need to be happy. I get 30, 45 minutes tops. And then you go back to the waters of other narratives pounding on top of you. No wonder it feels so defeating sometimes in our Christian walk when we're trying to live our lives in a way according to the scripture. And the only content, only contact we get of that narrative is 30 minutes on a Sunday morning. <laughs> Insufficient, friend. Insufficient. If this is the only time you encounter the narrative of the Bible, there's no way your life's going to be formed in the way that God intends it to be formed, man. It's a fool's errand. It's never going to happen because the other narratives are going to pound on you every day. It's every advertisement, every walk in the mall, other narrative pounding on you. You need this to be happy, right? And I get 30 minutes. But the point is, you get to choose. You get to choose which narrative you're going to swim towards. Or what most people do, to be honest with you, is we just float. We just float amidst the currents, and, then and they take us where they will, right? These narratives, they wash up, and all of a sudden we wake up one day despising who we are because we refuse to take an active role in the formation of your character. You just let the currents take you. I've had that day. We talked about this last I've had that day where you wake up, and you look at yourself, and you're like, who am I and why? I've had that day when I wake up and I look at my life profoundly disappointed with the person I've become. 
because I've stopped engaging in the process of my own formation. And I've thought maybe character just happens on, perp- on accident. Like maybe good character just happens like we like trip over something all of a sudden. Wow, I'm a great, awesome person. We think about it that way often, don't we? Like it'll just naturally happen. And the whole underlying assumption of this whole series is that it won't. It won't naturally happen. What will happen is you'll trip over one day of profound disappointment in who you are because you didn't engage in the process of the formation of your soul. We talking? Yes. Me and Rosemary. Cool. Awesome. All right. So, so week one was what's the gospel? Week two was how does it form us? And today is for what purpose? What is the purpose? Okay, the gospel transforms us. Maybe you believe that, maybe you don't. But if it does, what's the purpose? So let me just dovetail a bit from last week. Last week we said the gospel forms us more like a love relationship than a moral code. The gospel forms you more like a, it forms you more like getting married than it does like converting to a religion. That's what the Bible teaches. The gospel forms you like getting married, according to the Bible, not converting to religion. And God, oops, my iPad just closed out on me. It's the first time it's ever happened. Hang tight, team. (laughs) God seems to want your heart not just sterile obedience, right? So we understand whatever it is we're about to talk about, whatever the purpose may be, the way that purpose is achieved is through a romance with God. Romance with God. Gentlemen, can you, can you hang with this kind of language? A romance with God. It is through. If you're going to be changed as a Christian, let me tell you something right now. If you are going to be actually changed as a Christian, if it's going to actually do anything in your life, it's not going to do anything like a moral code does anything. It's not going to do anything like a list of rules. That's not going to do anything. If it's going to do anything, it's going to do it because you're falling in love with Jesus. That is the only motivation in the Bible we see for the transformation of the soul. Not, I'm going to be a better moral person. It's not how it works. And if you're on that moral behavior campaign, you're probably profoundly disappointed right now, right? Because I've tried to change my behavior over and over and over again. But I'm telling you, if any transformation is going to happen in your life, it's going to happen because your heart is warming towards the Holy Spirit. Your heart is softening towards Jesus. So if whatever happens, whatever the purpose is, that's how we get there. Love and adoration for who Jesus is, affections for him bubbling up over us. So there's one of two ways you could be hearing me right now. You could be hearing me thinking, well, that's good for you. I'm glad that sounds great. And maybe that's true. Maybe that's not true. Or you could be asking yourself this question, which will make this whole process more effective for you as a person. Is my life reflected of this? Is my heart actually in love with Jesus is, oh, oh, I'm sorry, stay with me, stay with me. Hold on, look right here, look right here. Am I falling in love with Jesus? Am I falling in love with Jesus? Because if you are not, then there's no, it's no good, man. Like you're gonna, you're gonna, you're gonna mount up with some sort of moral behavior campaign again, and I'm gonna get better and I'm gonna go to church and you'll fall flat on your face because rules are not enough. The law is not enough. If it's gonna happen, it's gonna happen by romance with Jesus. I'm gonna get back on my notes now, okay? And we're gonna keep going on. All right, so, so for what purpose, guys? For what purpose do you think the gospel transforms you? Like, what's the goal? If you think, hey, if you, should, if you, if you could become a Christian, your life should change. Anyone think that? Okay, good, me and Stephen. Great, perfect, couple people. That's <laughs> okay. I'm so obnoxious right now to some of you. Okay, if you think, if you think that like, your life should change to be a Christian, okay, well, what's the point? Why? Why should your life change? Like, why is God interested in making you holy? 
Why is he interested in making you fully alive and flourishing in Christ? Like, why is scripture always like, be transformed? Like, why can't I just be like I am, right? Why is scripture always like, hey, 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 don't conform to the world, but be transformed by the renewing of your mind? Why is it like, hey, we with all unveiled faces behold the glory of the Lord are being transformed into the same image? Whose image? The image of the Son of God. From one degree of glory to another. Okay, well, there it is. I guess, I guess we're supposed to be being changed, y'all. <laughs> I guess part of being a Christian is continual change. Okay? For, for what purpose? Why be transformed? Is it merely, hang with me, is the transformation of the gospel merely for moral perfection? Like, is that what God wants from you? I just need you to be better. You know? Like, just stop losing and start winning. Like, is that the goal? Is that why Jesus is like, hey, be transformed? Is, is it like, and this, of course, you know, there's some truth. Like, is it like a, um, what's the guy's, the uh, carver, carver, like uh, the guys that make statues? What's that word? <laughs> I, thank you. I speak for a living. No worries. Um, like, is it like that? Like, that's why. Like, he's just going to chip away all the stuff that's not what he wants, and then he's going to make you this perfect statue. And then what do you do with statues? Well, you just, like, you know, put it in a glass case, I guess. I don't know. You display it. I mean, sure, that's, that's something is there. But is, is the purpose of transformation just moral perfection, human perfection? Is the goal? What's the goal? Why make you perfect? Is it just so you can love God? Honestly, I, I think the transformation is actually the natural consequence of loving him. Not, not, not he changes us so we can love him, but we love him and therefore are changed, right? But what's the goal? Is it just to make you holy? Personal sanctification? If, if it's just, if that's all it is, if it's just to perfect you, best case scenario, you become a Christian and die. Best case scenario, you surrender your life to Jesus, you walk out, you get hit by a car. Perfect. <laughs> because I got perfect, I got holy, and boom, gone, right? Just take me now. Like, I get it. Some, I mean, Paul was like, I'd rather just, die, you know? Like, I get that, right? Is that the purpose, though? Just to make you better? Uh, on the one hand, the reason for transformation, the, the purpose of it, can be understood in this scenario. Everyone with me? I mean, again, me and Rosemary, perfect. I mean, you'll, you'll start giving me a little bit. I'm just going to keep asking for it, all right? So eventually some of you. So on the one hand, the need for transformation can be understood by this scenario. Here it is. <clears throat> Maybe some of you can relate to this. It's the scenario of deeply loving someone who is destroying their life in addiction or substance abuse or self-hatred or just like really, really poor choices. If you've been a parent of a wayward teen or if you have a spouse or a sibling or a friend who struggled with addiction and substance abuse... You know this. And if not, you've probably seen a movie, right, that has this scenario where someone loves someone and that person they love is destroying their life, right? Just like ripping, like when you deeply love someone who's destroying their life because of their own choices, your heart rages. Your heart rages. Sometimes at them, like sometimes you're just like, get it together, what's the matter with you? But more often, your heart rages at the thing that's destroying them like drugs, or porn, or alcohol, or methamphetamines, whatever it is, your soul, if you love them, your soul hates it. You hate it 
because it's destroying someone you deeply love, right? You hate those things and you see it devouring them. You see them becoming some malnourished shadow of themselves. Your soul rages at the thing that's destroying them, right? When they begin to draw, withdraw from, with addiction, and you see their, their life's just eating away. They become the shriveled, emaciated, sunken-in version of yourself. You, when you love them, your heart rages. This is what the Bible's getting at when it says things like, our God is a jealous God. In some ways, this is what it means. It means he's jealous for your life. He's rageful at anything that would destroy you. And the story of the Bible is essentially that pride and sin has and is eating away at us like some sort of parasite, or really, to use biblical language, a predatory creature. That it's crouching at the door, like Genesis 4 says. Do you know sin is compared to a predatory creature in Genesis 4? that crouches at the door and its desires to own you. Sin, according to the Bible, is kind of like a cancer, but it's like a cancer that you've clutched to your chest out of your own volition. And because God loves you passionately, he is wrathful towards anything that destroys you, right? Therefore, continually and repeatedly, God will plead with you to put the cancer down, to let it go. And we're like, we're like Smeagol with this ring, right? Let me buy my big precious, right? Dude, have you watched the Lord of the Rings again? All right, do yourself a favor. Because so many of us right now in our lives are like Gollum with the ring. And you're clutching whatever it is to your chest because you think, if I don't get this, how can I be alive? If I don't but have this one thing, there's no worth living anymore. Whether it's porn or whatever, money, a raise, whatever it is. And there's things that you're clutching to your chest that's killing you. And because God loves you, he's going to tell you over and over again, put it down. Let it go. You know why? Because he loves you. And he wants to love you for eternity. And he can't do that if you're dead. And so God, over and over and over again in the Bible, is going to invite you to be transformed. Let me give you an example of this. Isaiah 1, 18. He says this, this is how God invites you to be transformed. He says, come, come, let's reason together. Though your sins are like scarlet, they're going to be as white as snow. Though they are red like crimson, they're going to become like wool, if you're willing and obedient. Just side note, um, the idea that the Almighty would say to you, hey, let's talk this out. Let's reason together is remarkable to me. Like, what kind of mer like when my kids are doing something that harms them, they're like, hey, Dad, we're going to play tag on the highway. You want to come? I, I'm not like, hey, let's talk about it. I'm like, no, we can't play tag on the highway. Why? Because I said so, right? Dad, can we stick this fork in the socket? No. Why? Because I said so, right? And yet God, when we clutch things to our chest that are killing us, he says, he, he appeals to your reason. He says, hey, 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 come here. In this, in this one, prove me wrong, bro. In this one, God says, I want you to understand. He appeals to your reason, which is unbelievable mercy to me. You know, he could just say, because I said so. But here he says, let's reason together. So back to the point. On the one hand, all the talk of transformation is first and foremost because God loves you and wants to love you for eternity, and he can't do that if you're dead. And so in the gospel, he's made a way for you to live so that you could be with him forever, despite the bad choices that we all know we've made and things that we clutch to our chest that are ultimately killing us. But is that the only goal in the gospel? Is that the only reason we're transformed? Is it just about you? 
Is it just about getting your life right? See, many, many Christians seem to think the sole purpose of God transforming their lives and the whole point of grace and the whole point of the law is to make them clean and perfect and holy. And now that they're clean and right and orthodox and they love God, let's hairspray life. Let's set up walls around us and let's isolate ourselves from the dirty and the sinful and the unorthodox, right? Can I say to you, if we make the purpose and goal of it all just personal holiness and personal salvation, it tends to breed a kind of defensive, turtle-shell, reclusive expression of Christianity whose main goal is becomes avoiding contact with the world. Do, I think, can I, can I say that again? Is everyone, are we, do we have thinking caps on? Do we thinking caps on? It tends to breed a kind of defensive, turtle-shell, reclusive expression of Christianity where the goal becomes insulate yourself from the world. The goal becomes retreat. They're dirty, right? If, see, which may, if, the goal is your, if the goal is just your transformation, if the goal is just your preservation, then yeah, you better hide your kids, hide your wife. Because they're going to find you, right? I almost showed, I almost showed it. Would have hijacked the whole service. Never would have got back on course. But see, isn't that what we do when we believe that the whole goal is just for us and about us? That's the right position, right? Christians then begin to justify living with a kind of desperate, neurotic overprotectiveness whose default position very much resembles this picture. Let's show them, JT. You know this one? What's that called? The Heisman, the Heisman. I want you to look at this. Look at it. Do you see what's happening here? Brother has something in his hand, and he's got a goal. And everyone else is out to get him. So he clutches the goods to his chest as close as he can. And then he reaches his arm out as far as he can to keep everyone else as far away as he can. And this pose is only really taken out of anxiety and insecurity. You only take this pose when you're not sure you're gonna be able to keep holding what you have. He can't risk dropping it. He's anxious, so he stiff arms. And this, my friend, seems to be the position many Christians take with their faith. They clutch Jesus to their chest, which is great. <laughs> but then they stiff arm everyone else who doesn't agree with them, who doesn't have their brand of theology, who doesn't go to the right kind of church. And I've always wondered, why do so many Christians seem uptight and defensive and dogmatic type people? Well, it's because they think the goal is just to make them holy and personally right and orthodox. Because if that's the goal, this is the right position to take. And of course, we see a long history of God's people acting like this, don't we? The story of the Good Samaritan is really a perfect example of that picture, isn't it? The Good Samaritan, which, by the way, is an oxymoron to the Jews. Samaritans were not good. They were half-breed, religiously compromised people. And what happens in the Good Samaritan that we read? Well, a Levite and a priest see a man beaten and left for dead, and they take a wide berth on the other side of the road. And then... A half-breed, religiously compromised Samaritan comes to his aid sacrificially. That's what Mike read. 
Do you know who a Levite was? A Levite was of the tribe that belonged to God. The priests were God's royal representative to the people. The priests and Levites, uh, Levites, sorry, their name is not Levi. They're of the tribe of Levite. Um, These represent men of history and lineage and doctrine. Priests and Levites represent guys like me, holy men, (laughs) set aside for holiness and righteousness. They were as orthodox as they came. Guys like that, priests and Levites, they're ferocious about doctrine and fight heroically against unholiness. And they don't tolerate that kind of nonsense. They were serious about God, right? They don't, they don't tolerate those riffraff Samaritans. They're compromised. They're theologically backwards. Dude, Levites and priests, they even tithed. They gave of their money. No one finds that shocking? They gave, dude, they gave of their money. They, you know, not even their money. Do you know these guys like this? They gave of their kitchen spices. Jesus talks about this in Matthew 23. It says, hey, you know these guys like Levites and priests, these orthodox guys, the really, really right guys, the right guys, you know, the right ones. <laughs> the kinds of podcasts you listen to, right? Um, those guys, you know, they, do they even tithe on their cumin and their dill and their paprika? Can you imagine I'm like, razor, scale, paprika. How long would this take? Babe, hand me the dill. Like, how long would that take? These guys were serious about God, right? They were remarkably right. You know what I mean? Like, way, way, way right. And somehow had missed the point of the entire law. And how did Jesus, stay with me, don't don't sign out right now, How did Jesus locate the fact that they had missed it? What's the grid that Jesus gave to them? What's the picture he gave to them that we could understand if we were missing it? What is it? It's that they were the kind of people who had no compassion for the needy. If you want to know that you've missed the entire point of Christianity, if you want to know that you've completely missed it, Ask yourself, are you the kind of person who has compassion on those who can add nothing to your life? Are you the kind of person whose heart is broken for people who can add nothing to your life? Nothing. Losers, riffraff, needy, broken people. Does your heart break for them? Because if not, Jesus would say to you, you've missed the entire point. You've missed the entire point of being a Christian. You've neglected what Jesus later would say, the weightier issues of the law, which is what? Justice and mercy and faithfulness. These guys had a religion that in no way impacted their hearts. It was completely cerebral. It was completely intellectual. And we know when it's completely cerebral and completely intellectual, isn't it fun to fight about things like that? Right? And love fighting about stuff like that because it in no way affected how they actually lived. And Jesus said, if you want to know If you want to know, maybe you don't, all right? You're like, like, I don't know anything else you're talking about. I don't like what you're talking about. Okay, well, listen. If for those of you in this room that want to know if you've missed the whole point of Christianity, the question is, do you have compassion on people that can add nothing to your life? You see where God wants to impact us, y'all? It's not in rules and religion. It's how we treat one another. 
This is the way in which Jesus himself would say, if you treat people in a certain way, it helps you know that you're right in the center of my will. But if your heart is, is not like that, if your heart's hardened toward people in need, Jesus would say to you, you've missed the point, friend. You've missed, this is the grid he's giving us. Lack of compassion. Jesus says, you know how you know if you're missing it? You don't have any genuine love for other people. In the Good Samaritan, it's the person that religious folk had dismissed. It was the irreligious person who was behaving the way God's chosen were supposed to behave. God's chosen. Do you guys get it? He understood something that the chosen of God didn't understand. Oh, man. Even in the midst, even amidst, in religious people, right? Even amidst serious religious observance, God's law, y'all, it was God's law, God's law, right? Like, if someone was dead, and the guy looked dead, it says he looked dead, left him for dead. If the priest would have touched him, do you know it would have made him ritually unclean? He wouldn't have been able to go to synagogue that Sunday. And that's God's law. That's in Leviticus. But somehow, these guys were obeying the letter of the law, but had missed the spirit of the law. I think it was maybe because they thought the point was their own cleanness. Why does God transform us? Why are we supposed to live in a certain way? These guys had missed it. You know, Moses tells people what the purpose of the law is. Can I read it to you real quick? What do you think the purpose of the law is? Moses reminds people, hey, here's why the law was given. See, I have taught you the statutes and rules as the Lord commanded me, that you should do them in the land that you are entering to take possession of it. Keep them and do them, for that will be your wisdom and understanding in the sight of the peoples. The peoples is a biblical language for nations. Every time you see the word peoples, just put in nations. Non-Jews, Gentiles, others, other ethnicities, other races, other nations. He says, the whole purpose of this is that so they see this. You see? Who, when they hear all these statutes, will say, surely this is a great nation. This great nation is a wise and understanding people. For what great nation is there that has a God so near it as the Lord our God is to us whenever we call upon him? And what great nation is there that has statutes and rules so righteous as all this law that I set before you today? Moses seemed to think one of the overarching purposes of the law was to draw nations into the goodness of God. It was so outsiders would see a quality of life and be drawn into it. It, it, it. The picture is this. When we're hanging out with our friends, when we're just doing life together, it's this, oh my gosh, did you see that guy's patience with his kids? I would have slapped that kid straight across the face. Dude, we were hanging out. And the way that, I mean, most of the time when I hang out with my guy friends, we all complain and whine about our wives, right? And dude, but this guy, he, the way he talks about his wife was like, I was like, who is she? Like, that's amazing. Like, that, that's crazy. Like, I, that would if I could have that kind of relationship with my wife. That would be, like, that girl is such a hard worker. Like, when I just hang out with her, I don't know how she does it. Apparently, the law of God, even all the way back to Deuteronomy, was to beautify the people, was to make them attractive to those who didn't know God. Is that how you see God's law? as a means of evangelism, as a tool for mission? Or do you think the whole goal is just your own personal holiness? Do you see holiness as a tool for mission? 
Do you understand that connection? Not for your own sake, but for the sake of those around you. Not just about your own personal holiness, but as, as a means for God to woo a watching world. Another place we see this in Scripture, the same impulse, um, is when God calls people to repent. Now, because in a modern age, we tend to have an extremely over-personalized understanding of faith. We think everything is just about me and God and between me and God. When we think of repentance, we think, well, repentance is when you have some sort of cathartic emotional experience experience at church and you cry and maybe you feel bad about something you did like you know you ate too much ice cream last night or something and you're never going to do that again you know we think repentance is that do you know how the bible talks about repentance <laughs> in the old testament when god calls people to repentance it is never almost well it's sometimes it's not just repent of doing evil it is often paired with something else let me show you this in isaiah 1 it says this Wash yourselves and make yourself clean. Take your evil deeds out of my sight. Stop doing wrong. Learn to do right. Seek justice. Okay, well, we think that sounds like repentance, right? Oh, but then it says this. You know what that looks like? Defend the oppressed. Defend the oppressed. Take up the cause of the fatherless. Plead the case of the widow. Do you understand repentance like that? Or is it just about you? Is it just about your little holiness that you want to get yourself clean and not be, you know, disturbed by people that don't have dads and widows that need help? God, you know, what, you know, you know, have you ever met? No? Always calling, always needing things. See, in our age, we don't often connect our relationship with God to the community around us. We have an over-personalized understanding of what it means to be, a, to be a follower of Jesus, and we think it's just about us and Jesus. Well, according to the Bible, it is not. According to the Bible, your relationship with Jesus, in fact, is seen primarily not in how you talk about Scripture. It's seen primarily in how you treat those around you. Specifically, taking up the cause of those who can't take up their own cause of justice. Defending the fatherless. Pleading the case of the widow. Often in the Old Testament, it's not just repent and stop doing this. It's start doing this. It's not just stop sinning. It's start being affected by other people's suffering. It's repent and start giving a rip about other people. It's repent and stop turning a blind eye to those who don't know my grace. It's repent and stop clutching my love to your chest and start giving it away. Stop Heismaning the broken and the dysfunctional and the insecure. You know, we have a phrase for this in Christianese. We call it an EGR. Do you know what an EGR is? Extra grace required, yes. So these are the type of people that when you see them coming in the hall, you doubt, dart into the bathroom. Um, these, these are the type of people that when you see them at work, you're like, oh, God, no, 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 no. These are the type of people that when they call you, you're like, red button, okay? EGR, extra grace required, <laughs> you see? And what he's saying here is stop avoiding the people in your life who need grace, Stop, of, stop pushing away the people in your life who are more needy than you and start taking up their cause. Many Christians 
need to get off their high horse and start taking their cues from Jesus, who got on his knees and washed the feet of even those who were about to betray him. Why does God want to transform your life? For what purpose does he pay the price for your sins and wash you clean? I'd argue biblically, God loves you deeply and he's paid a great price that you might know him and love him, yes. But the cross, the Holy Spirit, the transformation of your life is not merely for your own sake, friend. It is for the sake of others around you. It is to create a people who are so radically outward facing, so radically generous with their lives, right? A people whose mission is not to hoard treasure like a dragon, a people whose mission is not to amass comfort and wealth and make life easy for themselves, then start building walls higher and higher around them, but a people who would be willing to sacrifice comfort and wealth and luxury so that others would know the grace of God. A people not on the defensive, but on the offensive, right? Who would go to the highways and hedges to call others into the goodness of God. Is that on your radar, friend? Is that on your radar? that part of being transformed as a Christian is that you now are going to the highways and hedges and calling others into the goodness of God because if not, your Christianity will grow bitter in your mouth. It will grow bitter in your mouth because it's not made just for you. It's made to, to give away, right? The heartbeat, y'all, why did Christianity spread throughout the ages? The heartbeat of the whole ship was God's radical love, not simply for you, but for the world, the whole world. I think some of us want formation, we do, but we don't want mission. And I'm trying to tell you, they go together. They go together. You can't have one for, without the other. A few scriptures in the New Testament, and then we'll get out of here, because I'm boring you, I can tell. First, Titus says this, who, God, who gave himself up for us to redeem us from all lawlessness and to purify himself a people for his own possession who are zealous for good, what? But you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession. Why? So that you can Heisman the world? Oh, no, no, no. So that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness into his marvelous light. Now, at this point, you realize we're talking about evangelism. Let me just start landing the plane with a few words on evangelism. Uh, because I think many of you do not like that word. <laughs> it feels arrogant, right? You're going to go tell people. I think we think uh, in the relativistic age that we live, we think God saved me, and that's great, and it's good for me. But other people, they'll find with their own thing, and that's good for them. I just have to tell you, if that's your position towards evangelism, um, if the gospel is true, that is possibly the most hateful, apathetic position you could ever take towards unbelievers. Thank you, sir. What I found is even when people aren't Christians, even when people think it's total hogwash, they're atheist or they're agnostic, when they see the gospel articulated respectfully, even they can see, hey, if this is true, if God has had mercy on us to save us from eternal damnation, you must really not care about people not to tell them. And I just want to challenge you today. I'm all on board with like preach the gospel and use words sometimes. Like yes and amen, especially going up in the Bible belt, right? Like Jesus condemns people who preach and don't practice, right? So we talked about yesterday and Saturday. Uh, I mean, what else is the good Samaritan other than saying, hey, it's by your love, not by what you say, that people are going to know your disciples. But I just need to say to you on the other side of that corn, uh, corn, coin, <laughs> on the other side of that corn, right? Um, you might be an awesome dude, right? 
Like you might be the kind of like next round is on me kind of generosity at work, but if you're too chicken to say the name of Jesus, if you're too scared uh, to talk about God's impact on your life openly in your workplace, then that's you taking the credit for all the good God has done in your life. You get the glory, friend. Everyone's just gonna think, man, Brad's such a great guy. He's so sweet, love that dude. He's so generous and so kind. And maybe, maybe that's not how people would describe you, but if it is, like if you think, yeah, and if you're never willing to say, hey, I just want you to know, like the reason I'm this, like the reason I am the way I am, like honestly, it's not on my own steam, but it's because Jesus has radically transformed me. Like if you're never willing to give Jesus the credit, I think Jesus would have things to say to you today. Like this, I don't light a lamp to put it under a basket. But I light a lamp, I give it the Holy Spirit fire, I light someone's life up to put it on a stand so that it gives light to all who are in the house. In the same way, the light that I give you, let it shine before others so that they may see your good works and give glory to your Father who is in heaven. Right? So do you see it right there? God does the work. He lights you up. He infuses you with joy and peace so that what? Those outside see the glory of God. But he would say this to you, I think, as well. If anyone is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will be ashamed of them when he comes in his Father's glory in the whole, with his holy angels. I'd say to you this today, guys. If your understanding of the point of the gospel is simply about you and for you, and not to flow through you to others, I'd say that's more a reflection of the consumerism of your day, bleeding over into how you think about God. And when we talk about evangelism, we, also, we often think, we immediately start feeling guilty, right? Like, I know I ought to, but good, thanks for the drive-by guilting today, Pastor, appreciate that, right? And most of the time when we talk about evangelism, we feel guilty because we know that it's not really on our radar at all, you know? And I know I should really care about this, but I just don't. And I thought about this ridiculous commercial I saw this week. I saw, guys, I saw a commercial for cottage cheese. <laughs> and in the commercial, like, all these beautiful people are just like, <laughs> just spooning cottage cheese out of a tub. And, like, what kind of wacko eats cottage cheese straight, right? And I was just like, dude, how many takes did they have to do for that? Because they're like, yeah. One more time, one more time. We need you to smile. Okay, okay, I got this, right? And I was like, dude, that's how people think about evangelism. Like, man, I know I ought to, and I should smile, but, right? And every time the pastor talks about evangelism, right? It's like the kind of food that no one really wants to eat, but we know we ought to, so everyone smile, and you know you're going to love it, <laughs> right? I just tell you, that kind of guilt-laden way of thinking about evangelism is absent from the New Testament. The gospel spread because followers of Jesus believed that Jesus left the riches of heaven to become poor so that the poor might become rich. Christianity spread because the undergirding belief was that Jesus became poor to make you rich. And if you think about it, like if we just take it at that, well, that could turn you into a narcissist. He lost, I won, all good. I'm rich now, but it didn't. Why not? Why didn't it turn them into selfish jerks? Because Jesus left all of heaven to give all of them everything Jesus had himself. Why didn't it turn? Because they also believed something else, that they didn't deserve it. They believed that it was pure grace. And pure grace, if it's true grace, never convinces you that it's about you. 
It always convinces you that it's about someone else. It always flows. If it's pure grace, true grace turns you from a selfish person into a selfless person. It was the surprising love of God that they knew they didn't deserve that radically transformed the Roman Empire. Right? It's the truth of the gospel that transforms you from a selfish person into a selfless person. I'd say if you consider yourself a Christian, but have never submitted yourself to the mission of God in any real way to seek and save the lost, the answer is not trying harder. The answer is receiving the unmerited grace of God for yourself. It's looking to Jesus. It's seeing the pain he was willing to endure for your sake, the scars he was willing to bear for you. Because, you know, when Jesus confronted the Pharisees, and I, I mentioned this earlier, do you know? What he said that they had neglected, we already said it, the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faithfulness, right? So if I'd say, if you're, if you're here today and you're understanding what I'm saying and you're saying, well, I guess that makes sense and you see why God would transform us and all that makes sense. But earlier, when I, when I was talking about this, when I was saying, well, about when God lights you up, when he infuses you with joy and peace, when I said that word, you're like, yeah, my life's not infused with joy and peace. Then maybe today, what you, what you don't need is a sermon about evangelism. What you need is a sermon about how God can infuse your life with joy and peace. And if you are here today, and the joy and the peace of God is an alien thing to you, it's not a reality of your life, then we don't need to talk about evangelism, because you'll screw it up. <laughs> what we need to talk about today is you receiving the mercy and love of Jesus as a reality of your life, because guess what? When you receive the unmerited grace of God as a reality in your life, you don't need sermons about evangelism because you will naturally, naturally tell everyone you meet about the goodness and the grace of God. Just like right now, you naturally tell everyone about that awesome movie you saw last week. Just like right now, you tell everyone about that awesome restaurant you go to and you love it so much. And right now, you tell everyone about that awesome vacation spot. You know why? Because, you know why? Stay with me. We're done almost. We're almost done. Because you genuinely enjoyed it. And when you genuinely enjoy God, it just naturally flows out of you. And if you're here today and you do not genuinely enjoy God, God wants to change that about your heart. And he can and he will if you ask him. So right now we're going to go towards communion. And this is